Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 2nd, 2014, and my guest is, finally, Mike Munger of Duke University. Mike is the Hank Aaron of EconTalk guests, having appeared an astounding 25 times by my count. Mike, welcome back to EconTalk. It's a pleasure. It's taken me this long, actually, to get over the end of the baseball season. Well, I'm sorry about the Hank Aaron reference. Uh, (laughs) I would have said Stan Musial, but uh, he's not the all-time home run leader. A fine and extraordinary player that he was. But as many listeners will remember, uh, you are a Cardinals fan, which is why I mentioned that. Right. I think I'm actually just Cal Ripken. I have the most games, not the most home runs. Uh-huh. Good point. Yeah, you're the, you're the iron horse, uh, if yeah. I may make a, another reference. Uh, we made a prediction, you reminded me, before we started recording this uh, a long time ago. It was a joking prediction that the Cardinals and Red Sox would actually appear in the World Series, and I'm almost sorry that happened, although I have to say, unlike 2004, the Cardinals were not swept this time, so it wasn't quite so bad, but I I, I still wake up screaming. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I still suffer from 1967, and even though <laughs> 46 was before I was born, I have virtual You're memories spoiled. of it. Yeah, no, I, because of 1-4. I am not spoiled. <laughs> um Our topic for today is not the rivalry between the Boston Red Sox and the St. Louis Cardinals. Our topic for today is what is called by some the sharing economy and by others the peer-to-peer economy. And it's the rise of web-based and typically iPhone-based ways to share your house, your car, uh, even your pets. So some of the companies we're going to be talking about today include Uber, Airbnb, Lyft, Dog Vacay. Uh, flight car, monkey app, and and maybe some others. Uh, let's start by talking about uh, what's the basic idea behind these these companies. Well, in each case, there's a difficulty that might be created by lack of information, and it might be created by regulatory or property right rents, and so it's a it's a complicated mix. When we talk about all these different things, I think the most interesting thing that that they all share is that they're a way of undercutting or offering a new technology that gets around something that right now is either more difficult or more expensive than it, and I'm making air quotes, should be. But of course, the traditional uh, taxi cab companies, hotels, uh, people that operate that want to find parking spaces disagree. So the, the, it's controversial because it's not only sharing, it's destructive. And the other aspect of it besides the, the end around that you're referring to around property rights or information problems is um, there's a transaction cost aspect of this, an issue that you and I talked about many times in past episodes. So I might have a car parked at the airport and gone, I'm away for four days for a trip my car sits at the airport for four days, and it's just a wasted resource. Nothing's being done with it. In fact, it's a little bit vulnerable sitting there with no one uh, using it, and that can be true of my house as well. And one of the aspects of this new kind of product 
or service is that it allows much better capacity utilization of assets that we've acquired and, and own and often are sitting idle. And when I, at the end, I hope we'll be able to talk about what an extraordinary uh, set of implications that has for, for life that aren't apparent when you, at first glance. It just sounds, oh, it's nice or you get to get some use out of something you don't always use. But I think it's actually quite uh, revolutionary. Now, let me start by just saying something about Uber. Uh, I used Uber for the first time yesterday, not to prepare for this interview, but just actually I'm out in California uh, for, the, for the big chunk of the summer. I'm staying in a house uh, that I was able to find via Airbnb, as it turns out, and I only uh, had not rented a car yet. Uh, so I wanted a ride to to campus where, where I work at Stanford. So I called – I didn't call. I contacted – I pulled up my Uber app on my iPhone. It immediately recognized where I was and said, where do you want to go? And I said I wanted to go to uh, such and such a place on campus. And uh, the Uber responded saying, you know, there's two options for Uber, I should mention. There's a cab-like service that has a meter. And then there's more like a limo service that is a fixed price. So I chose the meter, which is, quote, less fancy. Uh, and what's remarkable, it says, when I said where I wanted to go, it said, there's a driver within three minutes. Do you want this ride? It will cost between 15 and $20. I said yes. Uh, and immediately, a map came up on my screen with an image of the car coming to get me. At the bottom of the screen was a photograph of the driver, his name, and his rating provided by other previous users of his services. Uh, he showed up in his own Toyota Camry, no markings on it to suggest it was a cab. So here I am getting into a car of a stranger, which I think makes some people very uneasy. Uh, I got in, uh, had a lovely conversation with him about Uber. Uh, he told me that if your rating drops below 4.6, you can't drive anymore. Your uh, Uber gets rid of you. Uh, and at the end of the ride, he said, well, we're here. And I said, thank you. And I got out of the car. I didn't pay him. I didn't tip him. I asked him how much it was. Oh, he said it was $15.56. Uh, immediately as I got out of the car, Uber prompted me to rate him. I gave him five stars. He did a fine job, drove well. I uh, was a pleasant conversationalist. And uh, it's a part-time job for him. He does it occasionally. He has another job. He uses his car and his time to make a little more money. And um, I get a cheaper ride to work with an incredible bit of improved service beyond just the price. Um, and I, actually, I shouldn't say it's a cheaper price. It might have been about what a cab would cost. But I loved that it told me it was three minutes away. Uh, Uber looks for the driver that's nearest to where you're calling from. And it knows where you're calling from because of your phone's uh, embedded uh, location service. And it's just an extraordinary thing. I'll add one more thing about it, and then I'll let you uh, react to, to this brief story, which is Uber has gotten into controversy over the last uh, few months because when there's a snowstorm or a rain uh, downpour, the rates change for their black car service and I assume for their cab service as well. They raise the rates because demand is high relative to supply at those times, and that encourages other uh, drivers of Uber to, to become available because they say they can make more money during that time. And so you can get a ride, which in New York City, say, might not get a ride at all in the rain or in a snowstorm. And that's infuriated some people. They've complained that 
Uber's price gouging, and that's a topic that you and I have talked about a great deal in the past. So uh, I wanted to start with those two things, just literally how it worked and that they've had some price gouging issues. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I think the, the appropriate comparison to play devil's advocate, one of the reasons that it often is cheaper is that he is probably not paying taxes. He is not subject to a safety compared inspection. To, compared to what, Mike? You think cab drivers? You think cab drivers pay taxes? If, uh, if you pay by credit some of them card, do. Yeah. yeah. Well, some of them do. It's true. Go ahead. And uh, more and more and more, you can you can pay by credit card. He doesn't have insurance, so if there had been an accident and you'd been injured, you'd have been on your own. He did not have an FBI background check, and he didn't have to pay for a medallion. So the comparison I would make is you and I say, you know, we can make a lot of money. Let's buy cigarettes in Virginia, and then we'll drive them up to New York City, and we'll open the back of the truck, and we'll sell cartons of cigarettes because the taxes there are $4.50, and it's only $0.30 per pack in Virginia. And so somebody comes up and says, well, I'm having trouble selling my cigarettes because I did what was legal, and I paid the taxes, the New York taxes. And you say, oh, you're an idiot. We can sell them much more cheaply this way. And look, we're helping consumers. There's a long line for us. Nobody wants you, so we put them out of business just because we're breaking the law. Now, it's true that Uber is a clever way around the law because they have this out. They're a software package. It's like the Yellow Pages. All they're doing is providing information. But it's actually a way of getting around the law. And the, obviously, I think the truth is somewhere between these two, but they just had a uh, an auction in Chicago for new medallions. They were going to sell 50 new medallions. They expected the starting price would start at $350,000. supposed to be in January. Usually within two weeks, they come out with the results. They still haven't released the results. I think nobody actually made a qualifying bid. So nobody wants to buy a medallion now. One way to look at that is that this we should, is we should, a destruction. We should, we should explain that a medallion is the it's it's actually I think a license. it's a license that allows you to pick. In the case of a cab company, it allows you to uh, pick up a stranger on the street who's raising his hand saying taxi. There's always been an out for limos. Uh, you can always call a limo service to your house. I don't think they need it the same. They don't have the exact same regulatory structure, but certainly it is against the law in almost every city in America to cruise around and uh, offer to to pick up somebody who is raising his, uh, his or her hand looking for a taxi and act like a taxi. And what Uber has done is be a little bit different, it's sort of like that, but a little bit different, and that's what the regulatory issue is. Yeah, it's much harder for the police. You don't have to raise your hand now. You just press a button on your phone unobtrusively, and the police don't know. For all they know, it's your friend picking you up at the airport. But I, I think you exaggerate slightly. So the medallion – now, medallions have sold in – Recently, for as much as a million dollars uh, in New York, yeah. in New York, despite the Chicago story, so there are people who are still investing in the right to be a taxi cab driver, either because they think that Uber is not as important as we do, or they think that Uber will be stopped and shut down and will not be a competitive force. I, Uber, I, I predict Uber will be stopped and shut down. Okay, I'm going to go against you there. I'm going to disagree with you. It is, it is under tremendous regulatory pressure. Uh, Pittsburgh just announced that it's – I, I just meant in, I meant in New York, it, in, in New York City. I actually think that the people who made that bet are making a good bet. It's too easy to run a sting operation. Okay, we'll see. But I do think that um, – no, the question isn't – I don't think Uber's illegal right now. It, it's, a, it's a gray area 
Pittsburgh has just ruled that it's that it must comply with the Pittsburgh Utility Council's uh, or Pennsylvania Utility Council's regulations. In Europe, there's tremendous pressure for uh, by cab drivers on on government to shut down Uber and not allow them. Uh, but remember, there is tremendous pressure from riders who like it. And I think I, I want to make sure we we make something clear here. There there are two aspects of this that um, to this attractiveness of Uber. Uh, one of them, I, 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 I don't think it's so much the price. I don't think the price is that much different. I think it's the convenience and power of it on a calm, normal day. And I think it's a, it's, it is its ability to change price on the fly using a fairly sophisticated algorithm. But then it, taxi companies can mimic all of that. They'll do it within a month. It's easy to do. If, if that were the reason, that's easy to do. It's basically open source software. I don't know about that. Um, it, you're suggesting then that the, that the cab company doesn't offer me a web, a phone-based uh, opportunity to, to hail a cab because they don't need to because they have a monopoly. Yeah. I don't know. I think the software is what makes gives them is what gives Uber its its comparative advantage. It's, it's, it's competitive advantage. The, it's interesting that the taxi companies are so awful at this. So if, if nothing else, Uber may force the taxi companies to improve the way that you connect with a taxi. But I think the cost advantage is really a problem um, because it actually raises a lot of questions about the nature of due process. Suppose that we don't take any action and the value of these medallions falls to zero. Are we obliged to offer compensation because we've, in effect, made a regulatory decision that's a taking? This property right, this medallion, had significant value. We made a choice without due process that said we're going to reduce the value of this medallion to zero. Are we obliged to compensate them? Who's we? The state, just like we would if we were taking your land under eminent domain to build a road. I'm just giving you a hard time. Um, I don't think that would win, but I'll be interested. It would not. I, I don't think. It, 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 would, it would not. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up was my good friend Peter Van Doren had an article at uh, Cato uh, this past week that's a, a really terrific discussion of that and, in fact, gives good reasons why we, in quotes, would not be obliged because it's something different. It, this is a sort of a political property right that we all recognize is contingent on policy. It changes all the time, and it's a restriction on competition. Now, the thing that kind of bothers me is that you can say all property is. So I, I have 35 acres of pine forest south of Pittsburgh, North Carolina, and suppose I were down there one day and heard some chainsaws, and I walked back mm. three or 400 yards into the woods, and I saw some guys with chainsaws cutting down my trees. And I said, what are you guys doing? And they said, we've got a tremendous cost advantage because we can just take these trees and sell them. We can really undercut you. And I said, it's my land. He said, you need to read Rousseau. The fruits of the earth belong to all and the earth itself to no one. So we can just take this. And that piece of, that piece of paper that you say has property, well, the state's going to change that. As soon as they realize that you took this land from the Indians, it's unjust. It's not a real property right. This is the same argument that people make about taxi medallions. It was unjust. It was a restriction on competition. It's not a real property right. Once we start saying property rights aren't real, I'm not sure I have my pine forest anymore either. Well, it is certainly true that 
if you paid a million dollars six months ago and now you find that asset isn't paying out, first of all, you can't resell it for a million. And secondly, it's not the cash flow that you anticipated from in using the medallion isn't coming through. Uh, that's a real unpleasant surprise. Uh, you're definitely well, lost is money. It, is it a violation of due process? Because did we make a promise? The, the, the reason that you need this medallion is we're going to force anyone who provides transportation services to have a medallion. No one else can provide this. And so when you pay for it, you can in good faith think we're going to protect your property right. And yeah, that's why no, you in good faith pay for it. Yeah, it's an interesting <laughs> question. Uh, it's a dangerous slope uh, because what it does is, of course – uh, set in stone, all rent-seeking uh, victories. It's very depressing. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think I think the answer is, and the, the read I would I will we'll put the link up. The the Van Doren article makes the the distinction. There is a difference between private property and uh, kind of reifying rent-seeking victories. I don't know where the line is. But if it's clearly just a restriction on competition and entry into an industry where there would be big benefits then we shouldn't compensate. But in a pine forest, having exclusive... Of course, I'm going to say this because I own a, a pine forest and not That's a taxi right. medallion. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but in a pine forest, it makes sense. You know, we don't want it to be a commons. We don't want everyone coming in and overfishing, overharvesting. And so it's a solution to an externalities problem, whereas the medallion... Maybe it's a solution to an externalities problem. That's the argument we make is we don't want too much congestion. But if you look, there probably are just not enough taxis in New York, particularly at peak times. And so I think the congestion story doesn't hold up as well. But I'm, I, when I started to think of this sort of devil's advocate argument, I actually am not as sure as I was that the difference is as clear as I thought. Yeah, no, it's, I'll have to confess the same. Uh, but I want to go back to this other issue of what the, uh, the end-around aspect of this is and the cost advantage. You said something I thought was interesting that I, I think is – really highlights the approach of Uber and a lot of these other uh, companies to the more traditional companies. You said they don't uh, – they save money because they can they can be cheaper because of the medallion cost isn't there. And you gave examples like, oh, they don't have FBI background checks. But actually Uber does check their, their drivers. Uh, I'm on their website. I, I didn't know. I'm, I'm not – this is not a gotcha. And I don't know if they do FBI background checks, but they do check. Well, I do. I, I I spent about half an hour looking. They don't do FBI background checks. They do their own background checks. I think perhaps their own background checks might be better to the extent that Uber's reputation is a hostage, a depreciable capital asset. If the F FBI says, oops, they don't lose any value. If Uber doesn't do good background checks, they actually lose. They can't blame it on the FBI. So in a way, it it could even be better. The problem is... If Uber starts to go bankrupt, the, the the value of the bond that they would lose would fall and the thing could just devolve into a lemons problem where they'll take any driver. Yeah, so that's what I wanted to, to highlight, that that on some dimension, Uber ha has an incentive to be more careful because they have real money at stake uh, and they are not protected in any way by, by a monopoly uh, from other competitors. That Lyft is another example of another company that – that does this. There's probably others that does similar things. Um, but, of course, because there's money at stake, they might have an incentive to cut some corners. Uh, like you said, they might find themselves in a bad situation where they would hire some bad people. Of course, that news would come out fairly quickly. Uh, that's the, what's remarkable about these services to me is how information about quality is spread and, and sustained. So the example I gave 
if you're a driver with a rating below 4.6, Uber doesn't give you the chance even to say, well, I'll take a 2.4 driver. It'll Maybe it'll be cheaper. Uh, no, they're out. Uber wants to maintain its own brand name's quality, its perception of quality, and uh, they're vigilant about it, at least right now. I, what I think is interesting is that it may be an age thing. They're, my son, my older son, he's 25. He's used to looking uh, and these online services for stars. You look at the reviews. Uh, he accepts that as good information. If there's a lot of reviews and there are no bad ones, that's good enough for him. Whereas you, I know you were out there waiting for the car with your walker because you're a really old guy. And so he pulls up and <laughs> so yeah. Can, um, you, can you take me to stand? What do these stars mean? I don't understand these numbers. It, so the, it, it may just be that for people under 30, that's fine. They accept that. The state they, the state doing background checks, ah, I'm not sure that's good. But if, if I actually have a, a credible signal for I can look at reviews, that's fine. So it's subversive. It's actually subversive of the the state sort of traditional role of licensing and restricting access. And now we have the, the whole world is basically rotten tomatoes where you rely on peer to peer information about reviews, not just the, the reducing of transactions cost, but quality. Your reference to rotten tomatoes, I assume is to the film side. Not to yeah, the- I, I, I I try that in class sometimes. I ask my students what would happen if there were no FDA, and they would just, it would be the Wild West. All sorts of drugs would be out there. You wouldn't know what to do. And I say, well, yes, what if there were no federal agency in charge of reviewing movies? And they look at me and say, well, there isn't one. Well, no, there isn't, and yet you still are able to find out something about movie quality, right? So, in fact, there's all sorts of ways to get information if it's a valuable and scarce commodity, and Rotten Tomatoes is free. And this information we can just attach for reputations. I use it on eBay. I use it on Amazon. The, if you're under 30, you trust within limits the information that you get from reviews much more than old guys like me with my walker. <laughs> I think it's my walker. Um, okay. <laughs> let's, well, let's talk about Airbnb for a minute now. Airbnb, fascinating to me, is a – a way that people can rent out a room in their house, uh, competing pretty directly, somewhat directly with hotels. Hotels don't like it naturally. It's undercutting them and reducing their uh, occupancy rates. And their complaint is that this is taking place without any regulation. There's no safety. There's no cleanliness monitoring. Of course, some of these complainers have never stayed in a hotel, obviously, because even with that regulation uh, of the hotels, you, you can find evidently in New York City – Bed bugs. I've never had to deal with it, but I've heard of it. Uh, and there, occasionally you don't get a clean room, but they're pretty good about it because they're in the business of trying to get you to come back. Uh, and of course, so is that person renting out the room in their house. So it's true there isn't a city inspector, reliable, honest, who knows, but there is no city inspector at all who comes to this person's house. All there are are previous travelers who've decided with a certain number of stars, how nice or unnice it is to stay in somebody's house. And it's uh, an alternative regulatory regime, effectively. Yeah, it is. And the, the there are two potential problems. One is that maybe there's not enough information, enough reviews for me to be able to tell. Or previous users, for some reason, just decide to troll. Uh, or maybe I find out there's somebody I don't like, and so I go and, and put some... Uh, some false reviews. There, there's some potential sure, for abuse. Course. Absolutely. But it, it, 
by and large, the way that it uses excess capacity, particularly in situations where it's relatively scarce. If you go and pay for a regular hotel on Manhattan Island, it's really expensive, even for a not very nice hotel. You can get a much nicer place in uh, Northern California, New York, Boston, uh, and that means that the person who's not there actually gets some use out of it. There's going to be there's going to be fraud. There's going to be crime. There's going to be some problems. But overall, the 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 improved use of resources just swamps that by orders of magnitude. It, it's a, a it's an amazing innovation. Now I want to talk about the quality differences for a minute. Um, again, I think it does depend on your age. For for a lot of people, the idea that you would get into somebody's car or go stay at somebody's house, people you've never seen before, is just plain scary. Um, for other people, it's a feature, not a bug. It's like, oh, I get to be yeah. a new person. I get to stay with their house, yeah. have breakfast with them. Um, and there's a high level of trust there. It's sustained by successful uh, re- reselling, people who who uh, transact over and over and get a good rating and earn earn people's trust. Of course, you could invest in that and then uh, take advantage of it, which, as you say, is going to uh, is almost certainly going to happen. Uh, I, w- I wonder why it hasn't happened in a more dramatic fashion already. I think it's fascinating whether these these will be su- sustainable given the potential for bad publicity from a bad, really horrific uh, tragedy uh, that could take place. And you could imagine – I just watched uh, – we'll put a link to it. Uh, I just saw an email – uh, correspondence between a couple of venture capitalists considering investing in Airbnb, and uh, one of them is you know pretty skeptical and, and missed it. It's a huge success right now, at least. But I can imagine somebody asked me to invest. And say, are you crazy? You think people are going to pay money even at, at a lower rate to stay at somebody's house? You think people are going to let them? You think people are going to offer rooms in their house to strangers? It's really a uh, it's a surprising phenomenon. I, I I am surprised how many people that I actually know that rent out and have just repeated positive experiences. Now, maybe it's just that partly because where they live. I, I have a friend, I'll, I'll call him Mario because it's his name. He lives near the National Science Foundation, and they're constantly having people in, and they you get paid a per diem. And so the, they they would prefer to be able to stay someplace cheaper so he lists this as being right near the National Science Foundation offices. And so people who were on the panels for you know geology, physics, chemistry, all of these interesting sciences come in. And he says two or three nights a week, he has these amazing conversations with these scientists. They'll sit in the living room. He'll open a bottle of wine. And the word gets out and people say, "This stay here. If you're going to NSF, stay with Mario. It it works great, and he has he has an extra room. I think this sort that sort of word of mouth is going to be the answer, c- combined with the fact that there are reviews, is going to mean that some people are going to have repeat business. They're actually going to have a pretty good sidelight sideline, uh, where two or three, four nights a week, somebody's going to stay with them, and it's pretty great. Now you mentioned taxes. I assume, but I don't know. Uh, I well, I don't know whether, whether the state takes a cut from any of these transactions. If you stay in, if you stay in Manhattan or Boston or anywhere, probably there's a special tax for hotels that I assume yeah. Airbnb avoids right now. 
Uh, yeah, I think it'll I think it'll be like Amazon. They'll fight it for a while and at some point they'll they'll uh give in and go along because uh they're otherwise all you have to do is pass legislation and you could, it's easy to run a sting operation. The same thing really is true for uh if if there were taxi cab. If you make it illegal, the nice thing about um Uber is if you run a sting operation, they'll actually come to you and you can arrest them. <laughs> This the efficiency. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's you really... can just right right at the donut shop. You, yeah. so the, if you're if you're an Uber, you know, don't pick anybody up at the donut shop. It's a policeman. Uh, I need to laugh for about fifteen seconds. We'll cut that out of the uh, of the final version. Uh, but I, that may be uh, that's that's a that's a career highlight there uh, inside the park home run. Uh, off the beaten track. Uh, I love that. Uh, yeah, so again, part of their advantage is they are uh, providing a, a service that evades taxes that apply and regulatory structures that apply to the existing hotel or taxi guys. But again, I want to emphasize the other part that's really, really important is this enormous increase in supply uh, that's coming from the fact that these rooms that weren't available to be rented out are suddenly through this technology now relatively easy to find. You could always rent out a room fr- from a stranger yeah. if you wanted to walk along the street, knock on the door and say, hey, I'm yeah. going for a place to stay tonight. Want to take me in? There's, there's <laughs> the, probably bulletin boards or something yeah, too. It was always possible. Yeah, but this su- – and you'd call friends, say, you know, about, you know, if you wanted to go to a, a – stay somewhere where there's an, a, a large event and – the technical name for this, as you alluded to earlier, is, is peak load pro- is a peak load problem. Demand isn't smooth. It's not smooth throughout the day. It's not smooth throughout the year. So if there's a big event in a small city, all the hotels are filled, like graduation at, at Indiana University. My um, uh, niece graduated from there recently, and my and my sister and her husband had to stay, uh, I don't know, 50, 100 miles outside of, of town and drive in. Well, Airbnb lets you stay right there because – the rates will be a little bit higher that night for staying in somebody's house, but there there are rooms if you're willing well, to do the, that. That's the genius part of why we, and it just needs to be explained. If there's a blizzard in New York, everybody who can either is taking a taxi or there aren't any taxis. So somebody who's sitting warm and safe up in his room and watching the news says, oh, man, it must be terrible to be out there. Now is tempted to go out there himself because he can make 140 bucks for driving somebody two miles. So it's a big increase in when when people are in desperate need of a ride, a lot more people show up. Now it's true that the reason they show up is so they can make money. But if if I'm standing there minute after minute and there are no taxis, it doesn't matter that the price of the taxi I can't get would be $7. Yeah, no, the people have trouble with that, though, as, as we've talked about it in detail in a previous episode that I'll post a link to. But uh, I find it remarkable, as I would, being an economist, uh, when people say it's so unfair. The, the Uber has a multiple. They warn you, um, when you when you try to get one of their cabs or, or uh, limos when it's extra high demand. They say this is going to be – X times more than usual. Could be. Yeah. I just recently. I I didn't end up getting the car, but I tried it at one point. And it said it was it was going to be one point one five fifteen percent higher. No, okay, uh-huh. that's fine. But on a rainy night in New York, um, as the theaters are emptying, it might be five times higher, four times higher. As you say, it might be a ninety dollar fare instead of a twenty dollar fare. And people are outraged, and I say to them, "Keep your phone in your pocket, my friend." Yeah, just do, wait. <laughs> start walking. Start walking. <laughs> 
It's easy Wait to avoid. Line, put your hand up. You don't want to be gouged? Well, don't get in the car. <laughs> I, I, I think what's interesting about it is we have this odd view that the person sitting up in his apartment watching TV and sort of expressing sympathy, saying, oh, it must be tough, is somehow more moral than the person who puts his coat on and goes out into the snow and picks up riders. Yeah. Because it, the second person, if anything, is at least trying to provide a solution. Sure, he's doing it out of self-interest because he says, that's a lot of money. I can help people. But it must still be a mutually beneficial transaction. So as you said, we've talked about this a number of times, but it does crystallize the fact that why would you think the person who sits up in his room and does nothing is okay and in fact good because they're sympathetic, whereas the other person who's so sympathetic, he puts on his coat and goes out, he's bad. Well, you'd like him to do it for free, and that's, <laughs> well, the, that's the problem, right? That's the real issue. I want a world, says the critic. I want a world where Uber is able to attract more people into their cars to pick up people without having to charge a premium. That's not yeah. the world we live in. It's an interesting no. world. And, and of course, you might go get your brother in a snowstorm, or you might not. Yeah. Uh, depends. <laughs> uh, depends how your brother – who <laughs> your relationship is with your brother. Uh, yeah. I want to mention two other – I mentioned um, uh, the the service that lets you rent your car out to a stranger while you're uh, at the airport – while your car is at the airport. It's called Flight Car. Then there's Dog Vacay. Dog Vacay, rather than board with a kennel while you're on vacation, you send your dog to – somebody's already got a dog. What a great idea. This yeah. person already walks their dog. Why not have them walk two dogs? <laughs> Uh, it's a genius idea. Um, I don't know how that's working out for the, you know, the dogs at breakfast. You got to see a strange dog you didn't know before, and it might be a little bit awkward. And uh, there, there's information problems. You would want to know how have previous people done, so you'd have to break in. But again, once it's say that up, again, what'd you say? Well, you have you would you would want to break into the system. I, I don't want to be the first person to send my dog to you. Oh, I see. I thought you meant I thought you meant you'd have to like break into their house and watch how they treat your dog. Because <laughs> you can't because the dogs break, break. by the the dogs' ratings are very inflated. Dogs being who they are, you know, they'll give a guy five stars <laughs> when they're at his house for a vacation. This should have been a four point two. They're they're just so darn happy. It it may be hard to yeah. He fed me every day. Dog food again. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite thing. <laughs> oh, God bless you, sir. God, <laughs> sir. Let me wag my tail some more and follow you around the house. I'm a cat person, by the way. I don't know what you are. I, but, I, uh, I see. Uh, no, I, 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 I'm certainly a dog person, and um, I'm excited about this. We would be happy to, to dog sit. Well, you could be making some money soon. Uh, but the other one you wanted to talk about, is, which I love the name of, is Monkey App which is not a place where you leave your monkey when you're on vacation. Uh, explain, <laughs> explain what Monkey App is, and it's not getting a good reception. I think this is the most interesting of all because, in a way, it's the most ambiguous. I, I actually – I'm not sure what I think about this. You know, I, I made a half-hearted objection about Uber uh, just to, to sort of get it on the table. But mar Monkey Parking App, I, I signed up, and I, I tried to uh, – bid for a parking space. It's in San Francisco, so obviously I wasn't really doing it, but I, I went through the process, and you can bid $5, $10, 15 or $20. To do what? To what, explain it. What you're bidding for is someone to leave a parking space. <laughs> so they're very explicit. What you're, what you're paying them to do is to leave a parking space. And the, you're that, you're gonna the fill, that you're going to fill. You're gonna, it's up you're, to you. 
You're subletting what it. you're doing. You're subletting you're just, it from them, right? Well, that may be. You're paying them to leave at when you get there. Now, maybe you take it, maybe you don't. Maybe you just enjoy watching people leave parking spaces. <laughs> but they're, they're, they really are careful not to say you're buying the parking space and that you're going to get it. What all, they're, all you're doing is paying them to leave a parking space. And so this has several effects. One is that there are people now who, instead of sitting at home playing video games, drive their old junker jalopy across the bridge from Oakland and look around for uh, parking spaces. And if they see one, they jump into it and they pay the minimum amount and then put themselves down. Uh, Monkey Parking App has two buttons. One is, I have a parking space and it, it looks for your location because it's a cell phone app. And the other is, I want a parking space, and it looks for your location. And then it matches people that have them with people that want them. And so... Um, it encourages, the, what do we call it, uh, staking a claim. It's like uh, people who, who go out and get a good URL hoping that someone will also want it, and then they can resell it to them. So it encourages people to prospect for, for parking places and make it even harder to find one. It makes it impossible. It's yeah. literally impossible to find a parking space. Unless on the you want to pay hand, for it. Unless you want to pay for it, which case it's really easy. And it means that you don't have to drive around for an hour. So there are distributional consequences. I would use it every time. If I bid $5, I'm going to be able to find one not too distant and pretty quickly. Um, I pay him, and there's no actual payment that takes place. It just matches, and it's it's the, like Uber. It's a genius thing. I have to, I have to have my credit card number. It's credited to his account. No money changes hands. We don't even have to talk. I just pull up. I wave. He's got my information. He pulls out. I pull in. And then I have to pay. So it's – it's. Uh, it, I think of it like ticket scalping actually because yeah. a ticket scalper buys a right. ticket that he doesn't intend to use. An underpriced then, asset like the parking space, which is, quote, too cheap, which is why there yeah. aren't any – there's no so it, is, it ends up being a two-part tariff. One is the money that the scalper charges you in excess of the price, and the other is the price that's received by, in this case, the city, which has the parking meters. And so the question is, is this a good thing? Should it be allowed? And I, I think the hard part about it is that there, it means that there are no parking spaces. There are no parking spaces that you can find. And for 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 the, at the at the uh, legal price at the but that's at the statutory price that the city has set. Well, again, suppose I'm I'm old, so I have my walker beside me in the front seat of my car, and I don't know about this app. I drive around and I say there used to be parking right. spaces. Exactly. And now every there place aren't is any. filled. Every place is filled. Yeah. So literally, the only way you can find a parking space is by using Monkey Parking App. Now, That's San if, Francisco enough, is, if enough people find it and get used to it. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's suppose it's successful, yeah. and it, it it seems to be becoming successful. Now, if it fails, then yes, but then we don't need to worry about it anyway. So I'm assuming it yeah. becomes successful. If it does, then either this or some competing software is the only way to find a parking space. I don't drive around. I'm able to find one pretty quickly. It's a little bit expensive, but for me, it would easily be worth it. I'm happy to pay. Um, I think some people would object to paying. What I think is interesting about this is that this has happened in South America for a long time, and you may have seen it in Chile. When I would drive from uh, Santiago over to Viña del Mar, we would visit the Congress. I know some members of the uh, Camara de Diputados, and we, we, we would, there's no parking spaces, but there are these guys who 
provide car washing services. Oh yeah. And so what they I've do, they this, have think, these. Well, you used to be able to have this in New York, by the way. It's not just in the Latin America, but South America. Go ahead. Well, the, in, in New York, it may be a little. The parking spaces are so valuable here. There's no. There's actually no parking meters. The parking is free, but it's highly scarce, so it's hard to find. So what they do is they put buckets of soapy water in the parking spaces, and they'll have three or four parking spaces marked out with these buckets of soapy water. And it's not legal. They don't have any right to do this. But you come in and you say, I want my car washed. And they'll move the buckets of soapy water. You can park, and then they'll wash your car for the next six hours. Yeah, it's incredibly <laughs> clean when you come back. It's, it's an amazing nice. thing. And they also say if, 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 if you give them a little bit of money, they'll also make sure that it's not scratched and none of the windows are broken. Yeah, so that, it's sort of a protection racket. Yeah, no, that's the service that I'm used to, um, that I've seen. And I used to see it in New York City. You don't see it anymore. Uh, you'd, you'd, um, it's a, there's an implicit threat. They, they offer to, quote, protect your car. Yeah, uh, but here it's a great thing. They're they're offering you the space that they've staked out for you, which is kind, yep. and you get a clean car. Yeah, and uh, they charge you for it. Yep, and and it is not in fact scratched, and the windows are not yeah. broken because it, it's understood that that's your your. It it is fabulous if you can afford to pay, and of right. course I'm a rich gringo and I I can pay. It means that there's no free parking spaces. On the other hand, if you can pay just a little bit, you can just pull right up and be sure there's a parking space and pull in there, park, give the guy a thousand pesos, and then go off to your appointment. Yeah, when you said it, 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 we're going to assume it's successful, for me, it'd be as successful if I could just use it whenever I needed to because <laughs> I have a psychological problem when I go to an event or somewhere to, and I, I have to have, I have anxiety, I have parking anxiety. Where yeah. I'm worried I'm not going to find a space. So this is like, you know, if this didn't catch on very much and only a few crazy, uh, you know, gearheads, got, geeks got into it, it would be great for me because I would just love – I would pay an enormous amount to not have to worry about finding a parking place. The, the problem is it's too good an idea given how many rich people there are that have parking anxiety like you and I do. <laughs> I, I couldn't live in a city. I just – I could not live in a city. It makes me nuts. To drive around, I don't mind traffic so much, but driving around looking for parking, I just I want to just run over a fire hydrant and leave it and have it towed. Yeah, and for me, the anxiety is you know there's a space. How big is it? My my parallel parking skills are mediocre. Then I have I have anxiety whether I'm going to get in, fit in or not. It's just, the guy behind you is blowing the horn. horn. You have parking performance anxiety. Exactly. Then <laughs> then he's breaking my windows even before I can offer to let him wash my car. It's it's bad news all around. Um, I want to shift. But you're here. rich. <laughs> yes. You're rich. Yes. Well, but even if I were poor, I'd be paying for that that parking place because I have parking anxiety. Um, <laughs> let's. I want to shift gears. Do you want to say anything else about um, nope. these particular sharing economy peer to peer stuff? Uh, I was going to ask you before before we shift gears. I was going to ask you: Is this a big deal or no big deal? It's kind of cool. It's very cool. Uh, is it important? Is it just a novelty item that? Cab drivers and hotels, of course, are going to care a lot about. Can't blame them. They've made these investments. I understand they're going to want to protect them. They're going to use the power of the state to stop this innovation um, and certainly enforce a, quote, level playing field and make them pay the same cost that they that they pay, whether those are productive or not. And sometimes, of course, they are. I'm not suggesting they're not. But again, this excess capacity being used, is this important or not important? Well, having – at first, tried to disagree with you. Let me come back and agree. The, the two main things, we listed three factors. One is that 
you're this this is sort of subversive to past rent seeking victories by licensing and other competition restricting groups it's a way of taking advantage of new technology that reduces transactions cost and it's a way of uh taking much more efficient advantage of uh excess capacity and resources that are now being underused I actually think the first of those is the sort of typical friction that you get as a result of innovations, and it's the second and third that are important, and so it is a big deal. The fact that technology has made this possible, because it's really the second, it's the technological change, the fact that we now are opening just big new vistas, new ways of uh, of interacting with each other without, it's actually in an impersonal way. So one of the genius parts about markets is we don't have to have detailed personal knowledge of the person that we're doing a transaction with. So that fact combined with there's always been this problem of excess capacity means that we can reduce what until now have been dead weight losses. Now it's true that the collateral damage is going to be people who in good faith invested in assets that the political process said, no, no, we promise we're going to protect the value of these. But it's always been that way. It's always been you know, we, people make good faith investments, they end up losing them. Um, and it, of course, it's easy for me to say, because I don't, I'm of good cheer about this, because I, I don't have a taxi medallion. But the, it, the, the downside is that I think it makes us less certain about the time horizon over which an investment can be assumed to pay, about yeah. the value and that means that we're a little bit more uncertain. The, the, the technology that, that works today may not very soon because somebody's going to come up with a better idea. Monkey parking app is crude. It works, but somebody's going to come up with a better one, and in five years it'll be gone. So I want to suggest a technolo technological innovation that I think is really extraordinary uh, and which is the, other, the direction I want to shift to. Uh, there was recently a, an injection of capital into Uber. It was a little over a billion dollars by a set of venture capital firms. And the stake that they got from that investment implied that Uber was worth $17 billion. And there was a little flurry of articles on the web by people who said, that's ridiculous. It can't be worth $17 billion. Other people said, yes, it could be. Here's why. And the part that I think is so extraordinary that is uh, potentially revolutionary is when Uber, instead of calling a cab or, excuse me, a, a person with a car who's in front of that television on a snowy night, it calls a driverless car. Uh, so what I want to imagine, and I'm going to spin out some of the implications of this world and, and let you react to it. So what I'm imagining, and I don't think it's very far away, is, and I think it's very close to technologically feasible – at least in a small way. The question is whether it would be, what would happen in a large way. We'll talk about that. But in a small way, we already know that it's possible to create a car that drives you around without a driver. Uh, it's, think of it as a drone on wheels. And I think the next step will be a drone in the sky that drives that flies you around. But let's let's not go too far in the Flash Gordon direction. Uh, let's imagine that you are uh, you want to go to work and you don't own a car. So what you do is you go to Uber and Uber calls a driverless car to come get you that picks you up and takes you to work. And uh, while you're driving, you don't get to make chit-chat with the driver because there isn't one. You then get, for better or worse, but you do get to do work or read or do whatever you want to watch videos on your 
backbone or whatever you want to do for that drive. And uh, so not only is the our cars going to be used more effectively, your time is going to be used more effectively. Of course, we're heading in that direction now. People listen to things on their phone. Uh, you're, right now, many of you are no doubt listening to Econ Talk while you're commuting in a car, trying to use that time more valuably. But imagine if all of your time in your car was hands-free and um, accident-free. And what would that do to the world? And besides the obvious fact that it would save forty to 50,000 lives a year uh, from car accidents, um, the it would have an incredible impact on all kinds of other things. So I want to imagine what those are. And I didn't warn Mike that, we, that I was going to talk about this. So if you want to think about this – Mike, and, and, and throw out some ideas, uh, but I, I have been thinking about it for a little bit and reading about it, and I think it's, um, you know, first you think, well, it'll be nice. You won't have, you'll be able to work while you're in your car. You, you'll be a, a passenger. It'll be great, but it's, um, it's so much more than that. Well, <clears throat> it seems to me, I, earlier I predicted that Uber in its current manifestation would be smashed, and I do think that it will break down, but then rise again I think Uber is like Amazon. Amazon early on sold books. Now they sell everything. everything. And and so it's the technology. It's not the transportation of a guy who shows up at your house who has a Honda and it's, you know, it's not too dirty and it's okay. It's the way of interaction that is important. And you said um, having a drone or a helicopter with Flash Gordon stuff, the uh, Uber is considering uh, merging or at least allying with a helicopter service called Blade. And it might not be very long before if, if you had pilotless drones uh, in just a couple of years, that probably is also possible. One of the reasons that helicopters are so expensive is they have so much downtime. Yeah. Whereas if you could come and be picked up, it might not be that expensive. And if you didn't have to have a highly skilled pilot, it might not be that expensive. And a space so, to land it. And Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing is that as you're driving and working, you're also not fretting about parking because there's no reason for that car. It sits there all day. And Think yeah, exactly. about that. No, it's unbelievable. So, so one of the more extraordinary things about a driverless – so it, the first thing I thought of naturally when you think of a driverless car is, again, if it's done correctly – very few or no accidents. You know, the, the Google driverless car uh, has driven, I think, millions or at least hundreds of thousands of miles. I think millions. It's never had an accident that was its fault, at least according to Google. They could be lying. I don't think they are. But as far as I know, they've been rear-ended at least once. Uh, but in general, they've not had an accident, which is – so your first thought is, well, that'll be a better world. That's great. Your second thought might be, well, if driverless cars work really well, they can go really fast. Or they can go pick up more than one person, a driverless bus, a driverless van. Um, the cost, There's some optimal size. A driverless yeah. van is probably well, right. Well, I think you'd have everything. I think you'd have everything. You, when you punch it into the Uber app, you'd say, well, I want – I need to go to the airport with my four kids and my seven suitcases, so send the shuttle. Whereas today I'm going by myself to so bring the, you know, the mini – You'd have all these different options. You'd choose which kind of car would come. There's no reason to own a car anymore. Yeah. You start thinking about that. There's no reason to have a garage. There's no reason to have parking lots downtown. Huge. Huge amounts of very valuable space. In so some cases, wasted right now. Underground at gigantic expense. Just gigantic expense. 
So you have cars moving at high speed, getting better mileage, being used more effectively, all the maintenance costs over uh, taken advantage of with the economies of scale because you've got one car with all these multiple parts so that one type of car perhaps, or a few types of cars that you would maintain you know, very well. It's, uh, and, of course, the cars would start to compete. They would offer movies while you were driving. They would offer all kinds of you know, food service. It's, it's a mind-boggling exercise. But just the other part, roads don't have to be so wide. Roads don't have to be nearly as wide. So all of a sudden, you've expanded the landmass of a city Really, not just, oh, it's a little improvement. It's it's transformative. It would be a transformative, wild world. And it would be creepy for most of us who are used to using those of us um, who use cars as a status symbol. Those people would have to find something else. Uh, our roads would look – it would be weird. You'd go out into a city street and you'd see all these cars moving at high – relative. of course, pedestrians are going to have to be more careful. That's a different issue. But putting that problem aside, which is real – you're going to see cars moving at high speeds with nobody driving them, the passengers uh, doing reading, talking, doing whatever they do. It's a very um, – it reminds me of the movie The Fifth Element for no reason uh, just because I see this um, this wild set of, of, of vehicles moving at high speed. But it would be a very alien landscape to me and my walker. But to our children <laughs> and our grandchildren, uh, it's going to be normal. And it's, it's cheaper. It, it's already <laughs> so we're, – we're almost halfway there in the sense that young people, and by young I mean maybe under 30, are just so used already to thinking of this way of interacting with other people. So much more informally, um, I was at a conference this past weekend and I offered to give rides to a few people to the airport and I, I ended up being promiscuous and offered rides to six people when I only really could take three in their luggage. And the other people said, no, it's fine. We'll take Uber. And I said, well, no, you don't have to do that. I, it, that's sort of icky. Well, and they looked at me like, you know, I had a walker. I must have left it back up in my room. They were gone before I did. I went out to, to get my car. I pulled up. We put the luggage in. The other people were already gone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, they had, and they had a more entertaining driver who, who probably drove better. I'm sorry to say, Mike. Probably, probably more competent. May have been a cleaner car. They didn't have to talk economics with the driver. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have to pretend they were interested in economics with the driver. But, but it, right, we shouldn't get hung up. And you're, you're suggesting this actually. We shouldn't get hung up on the particular manifestation of Uber. It's more the interface and the general way of finding ways to use more. When you say I don't have a car, I may not need a house. <laughs> yeah. If if I move around, I can have uh, my entire library is on my iPad. Yeah. I don't need to have physical books. Um, I have it backed up somewhere in the cloud, so I actually can't lose it. Even if there's a fire, I lose my iPad. I, I have all this stuff. I have all my pictures. I have movies of my grandparents. So all that stuff I have forever. I don't actually need a house. I can go from place to place and stay with people. You know, there, you know, famously, there have been some people who have tried to do this in the past. There, I think it's, it's difficult for me, a sort of bricks and mortar and BMW person, to imagine the level of change that we would get from not having so much excess capacity, taking full advantage of the resources. And our cities would be actually less congested and have a lot more people in them. 
it's really a, it's really a um, it's it's a game changer. Uh, it's I mean it, it's a revolution that that I think is coming. I mean one of the challenges is the regul- again is the re- existing regulatory structure is not uh, well suited for this world. Uh, well, we're talking about. Isn't. I actually have a question about that. Yeah. What compensation, not do we owe necessarily, but what compensation should we make in order to remove impediments towards for moving towards this world? So should we buy out sort of reparations, some part of these property rights? Not, not do we owe necessarily anything to tax But it's a political – it's like trade adjustment assistance, a way to make the it's politically – It's a huge political opposition. The opposition is going to be very organized. And you know the people that benefit from Uber, the benefits aren't that great. Taxi drivers and the people that Pretty own – some of these people own yeah. – yeah, you may own – some people in New York own 30 medallions. Yeah. It's a fortune. Yeah. You're going to be uh... – yeah, if you're not careful, you're going to be wearing cement shoes. It's um, well, swimming, in the, swimming in the river. It's These people have a you're lot of You're going to have two or three city councilmen that are going to come up with apparently principled arguments for why we can't do this. And we're not going to be able to move towards a world which would, in fact, create potential Pareto benefits. That yeah. is, everyone would be better off. It's just that it's hard to take all of the enormous benefits and compensate the relatively small losses. And if you don't do that, the people who are suffering these losses are going to find ways to block it. The political process power is asymmetric. It's much easier to block things than it is to accomplish things. So I'm going to say something. I have to say something in favor of the political process. I agree with you, of uh course. I agree with you, of course. But I'm going to say something positive about about our current uh, existing set of of institutions, which may surprise some listeners, for some reason think I'm some kind of anarchist, and and they occasionally get emails from me out there say that you're surprised I said something nice about government, or when I didn't say something, it showed that I was obviously in favor of X, Y, or Z. You know, obviously uh, there are many, many useful things that government does. Uh, some of them though are not so useful, and uh, I often do talk about those because I think it's good to learn about that, but. Uh, I'm going to say something positive about our current set of institutions. Uh, you're right. Obviously, cab drivers, uh, hotel owners, stockholders, et cetera, medallion holders have an enormous sense uh, stake in focusing to stop this revolution that we're, that we're talking about. And I'm going to tell you right now, they got no shot. They ain't going to, they're not going to do it. They have no chance. And that's because our political process, for all of its flaws, uh, doesn't stand to thwart a progress like that in the United States. It does in some places, and there are things, of course, that persist that are crazy and benefit a small group at the expense of a, of a diffused benefit to the rest of us. But if you can save 50,000 lives a year by moving to driverless cars combined with Uber, we're going to get it. Somebody will uh, – and, and I say that not just because I'm an optimist, which I am, but I say that because I look at the past and I see – that when technology comes that makes life hard for existing folks, we yeah, there's a, sometimes there's people try to slow it down and they slow it down. They almost never stop it. Um, the technology wins because the people who benefit from it, for whatever reason, the institutions respect that in some way. Don't know the mechanism how exactly how it happens, but the standard uh, Mansur Olson diffuse benefits, concentrated losses somehow doesn't uh, work over time like that. So I'm gonna predict right now that uh, in the next 20 years, driverless cars are going to be a reality even and maybe and it will combine with Uber. And uh, there aren't going to be any cab drivers. There aren't, may not be any truck drivers. 
Uh, so I have to get this line in, Mike. Mama, don't let your babies grow up to be cabbies because that <laughs> life is not coming. Uh, it's going to be gone. And that's, that's a whole separate issue of what people who used to be able to do things like that are going to do. We've talked about that recently at, at Econ Talk on a few other episodes. But it's a fascinating transition that, that we're going to be into. But it will be hard on the existing people, but no one's going to plan on it. Just like they're not going to bid for those medallions, they're not going to plan on learning how to drive a car anymore because it's just not going to pay. But the issue I want – the regulatory issue I want to talk about is the – is how we – is the, is, the, is city, state, and local government and federal government going to allow cars to drive without drivers? And then the question to me is do you have a smart grid? It's one thing to have one driverless car buzzing around town avoiding accidents or 100 or 1,000. But if every car is a driverless car, you now create the opportunity to create a road system that can – you know, your car will be hooked up in tandem with other cars going 150, 170, 200. You're basically creating trains on demand where you would link in – potentially link into roadways that, that would have very high-speed traffic. But without having to create that via the, the, the railway system, you're creating it through the software that's driving those cars in conjunction with the other cars. And that that's the real Flash Gordon crazy world. And I think uh, I think we're going to head in that direction. Well, Mark Andreessen, who you had uh, interviewed on an earlier Econ Talk, has, writes often and often says also that software eats everything. Yeah. And it, software could very easily eat cars. It is interesting to think about the two steps you just talked about were first, we might allow driverless cars. And then how long could it possibly be after that before we prohibit drivers? Humans are just not very good at this. <laughs> right. Unbelievable. And so it actually for safety reasons, not just because the, of efficiency, but for safety reasons. I'm sorry. You know, you're doing 180 kilometers per hour. Uh, I, you can't drive that well. Yeah, Nobody can. It's too dangerous. Yeah. And plus, you know, I'm, I've got my walker in the back and I'm eating my donuts <laughs> And my dog's with me. It's it, it would be a lot of distraction, and I'm listening to econ talk, so it's, right. it's too and, dangerous. And, but at least you're you're not fretting about parking, so that you were actually focused. My guest today has been Mike Munger. Mike, thanks as always for being part of econ talk. It's a great pleasure. This is econ talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.